This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, March 9th of 2017, it's episode 106. In this episode, Limiting Evil, plus introducing our new host Jenny, our favorite hacks and drifts, Ronnie James Dio, Duelist, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Jenny. And, you know, it's funny, I didn't start the intro with something about a guest host. Yeah, you didn't. Do we have a new host? Yeah, we're up to three again. Hooray! Yeah! (laughs) Yeah! It feels good. It's so (laughs) good. Jenny, tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself to everyone. All right. I am Jenny Dixon. I hail from Ontario, Canada. Uh, Gaming-wise... I've been gaming for almost 20 years now. I did the math. I've been gaming for almost 20 years since I was about four years old because my parents were gaming back in the 80s. And then their gaming just kind of happened while I was a kid, too. And um, I sort of got swept up into their games. And I've been gaming for a very, very long time now with very few breaks. Which is awesome. Yeah, Yeah. it is awesome. And uh, religious-wise, I was raised Anglican. I don't think I've, yeah, I've never actually uh, attended a church regularly that wasn't Anglican, some form of Anglican or, or another. At my current church, uh, which is also the church I grew up in, I am the volunteer librarian and I am also a, an altar server and I do some uh, children's ministry stuff there. Which is super awesome. Yeah, yeah. very cool. It's very fun. And uh, in terms of occupation, I'm a student of library and information technology and this summer i will hopefully be doing records management stuff for a summer job so that's very exciting yeah that's great Mm -hmm. so we are delighted to have you on the show i'm delighted to be on the show it's very exciting (laughs) not just because you're an awesome person we know you you are uh but also thank you because listeners may have noticed that peter and i are functionally the same person (laughs) at least in terms of perspective and taste yeah also just like we're basically the same person two bearded white guys from the united states yes yeah and also it's frightening how close we are as the same person i cannot emphasize this enough it's like (laughs) oh yeah we both like exactly the same things you you're into craft beer and i don't drink uh you're a presbyterian and i'm a methodist and i think the similarities kind of take over from there yeah yeah basically (laughs) So it's great to have a third voice on the show who's going to bring different perspectives. If nothing else, you're like 10 years younger than Peter and I. So that's also good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So do you want to talk about or do we want to mention episode 10? What happened to episode 10? I don't remember. You had your mom on. Your mom was on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Also, um, my mom was on the show yes. at one point, very early on in the show's uh, creation. Yes, we had uh, Shannon Dixon on. I'll link that in the show notes. Uh, still a really good episode, by the way. I remember it because I seem to have episodes one through ten just memorized. <laughs> Don't quiz me on that. It's probably not true. Because but... the editing was that traumatic back then? Well, yes. But also, I think mostly, actually, I remember the episodes with guests because they're all awesome. Yeah, yeah, we had a really good episode with Shannon Dixon on, and now we've got Jenny Dixon. Hey. Cool. So, yeah, we have kind of an interesting topic to go over tonight. We're going to be talking about limiting the evil of villains and bad guys in our games. 
A few other quick notes before we move on to that and our Patreon question and our scripture. I've talked over the past couple episodes about Fellowship, this Fellowship game that we've been playing. Two quick notes on that. First, the last session went really well. We're getting used to the system uh, and things are going really smoothly, which is a nice change. Nice. And second, we had the rarest possible occurrence happen in any role-playing game. Oh, yeah? We had an extra session instead of a skipped session. Ooh. Yeah. Pretty remarkable, (laughs) but we do it every two weeks, and somehow, I think because somebody canceled the other game that they were playing, they were like, hey, why don't we just do another session of this instead? Everybody was like, shenanigans? I've never (laughs) had this happen. How do you have more sessions of a role-playing game, not less? (laughs) I did not think it was possible, and yet here we are. So that was cool. The other thing to note, I am just getting into Duelist, and it's actually really fun. Is it? Have either what? of you played this? I have not. I don't know what it is. Is this a board game, a card game, a, um, a video you, game? Are you familiar with Hearthstone? Yes. Okay. Imagine Hearthstone, but with a sci-fi, almost science fantasy kind of approach. Pixel okay. art. It looks very much like Hyperlight Drifter, if you've ever Ooh. seen that game, right? The art looks yes. really good. Uh, And similar sort of palette in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And rather than playing it on a kind of standard tabletop card game board where you've just kind of got your side and my side, you have your hand of cards. And those cards summon minions or cast spells. Very very Hearthstone-y or magic-y sort of setup. Except when you play a card out, it goes onto a tactical grid. Okay. Dang it, Grant, you've got me looking at the page for this as you're talking. I may have to get into this myself. Yeah. (laughs) Your win condition, right, the player that you hit, as it were, is the general who's on the board. So it's Hearthstone or Magic, but that plays into a tactical combat game. It's pretty interesting. The art style is great, and it's pretty complicated. I'm really really enjoying it. I am just getting into it. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about it. But it's really cool, and I would suggest checking it out as cool nerd thing. Hmm. Yeah. Anybody else got anything we want to talk about? I could talk about my fingerprinting uh, incident today. <laughs> okay, yeah, th- this briefly. is definitely a story worth telling. So Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear this, because this is pretty funny. Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned earlier in my little introduction, uh, I'm going to be doing some records management uh, this summer. I'm going to be doing it at a pretty high security facility it's specifically a nuclear research plant so um i have to get fingerprinted to get uh site access and uh security clearance and stuff so that i can actually look at the documents i'm going to be dealing with and you know actually go to the places where the documents are kept etc etc of course so i also happen to live in a place that's fairly close to a military base and that just so happens to be where the fingerprinting is is hosted if you will so um I go there. There were a few paperwork issues that I had to work out, so the paperwork took a little longer than expected. I get all the paperwork done, and uh, I go to actually like put my fingers on the digital scanner, and you have to put your four fingers, not including your thumb, on the scanner all at once. Yep. They just don't scan. Like the the lady had who who was doing the scanning had to press my fingers really hard into the scanner to actually get the scanner to register that fingers were there. And then the program that was doing the scanning said, those aren't fingers. What are you trying to pull? And so it took six scans (laughs) for my fingers to actually register. And the last scan that we tried, I actually had to put lotion on my fingers because my fingers are really dry because it's winter here Mm, still. So my right hand finally scanned. That was great. We tried my left hand. Nothing. 
And after the third try, uh, basically there's sort of um, a point after which the number of tries uh, runs out. So you have to restart the whole process over again. Oh, yeah. It's not per hand. So when we ran out of tries with the left hand, it was only my pinky finger that uh, was having any difficulty. And so the lady was just like, you know what? If I click this button, we're going to have to go through this process all over again. So she just decided to override the uh, program entirely. And uh, she had to put a reason in. She put in that I have um, a ridge irregularity or something along those lines. It was either a ridge irregularity slash skin condition or, or, or something like that. And so it took me about 45 minutes to do something that should have taken about 25 minutes 45 minutes to get pictures of your hand yes essentially yeah it... i've had to do the um fingerprint scanning thing for previous jobs mm -hmm. thankfully apparently my fingers are not appropriate for second story men <laughs> yeah um if if we ever have to break into something jenny <laughs> yeah we, we're we calling you because my apparently you don't actually have fingers as far as forensic technology yeah. is concerned uh my mom actually she had a principal I believe in middle school who legit doesn't have fingerprints at all um, she has to get like government approval to do a lot of things like they have to check in with her regularly to uh, make sure that she's not lying on any of her uh, IDs or, or anything like that wow. we fingerprint her and reconfirm that she has no fingerprints it's a, a little bit bizarre what an inconvenient thing to go through life with yeah <laughs> okay Peter what criminal activity have you been? I mean, uh, what? No. I got nothing that can top that. We have two new cats. Woot. Well, no, actually, that's something good. Because last episode, we just talked about your cat passing. So, hey, two new cats. Yeah, we've got yeah. We've got a large, fluffy gray cat who unfortunately has been kind of sick, but he seems to be on the mend. Yep, um, just normal he, little cat bugs. Yeah, the usual kind of thing that they get at the shelter and then kind of bring home with them. And we have this little, like cream colored uh younger one he's about 11 months old who is the most vocal cat i have ever met this this cat meows like <laughs> 10 syllables at a time he'll walk up and he's like, <laughs> like oh wow you don't say kitty <laughs> does it have any color point in it uh, or siamese no i don't think so he, okay. he looks like he's a i mean they're shelter cats so who really knows right, but sure. He looks like he's another little, like, you know, Norwegian forest cat or Maine Coon kind of mix. Hmm. Um, okay. Oh, he's young yet. Sweet little guy, but just very vocal. I know Siamese tend to be pretty talky. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they're talky in a weird way, too. They have a weird voice. Oh, I know. We have one. And, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the eldritch cat, Grant? I mean, it's a cat, so yes. Okay, well, that that's a redundant statement, I suppose, on some level. <laughs> I suppose it is. All right. So uh, our little uh, coffee minute having been completed here, <laughs> catching up with everyone. Somebody called it, our, you know, uh, Coffee Time with Grant and Peter on Twitter yesterday. Now it should just be Coffee Time with the STG hosts. Yeah, something like that. Three. Yeah, it, it amused me. Thank you for that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. So let's do our Patreon question here. Uh, quick note. Thanks for everyone who sent in questions. We kind of put out a call because we were running out of questions and needed some. If you don't have yep. some in, if you haven't sent one in in the past month or two, that means we're probably waiting on one for you. So get those in. Yeah. Us. Please. We like them. <laughs> yep. Hosts at stgcast.org. Easy way to do it. All right. I'm going to roll a die and let's see what we come up with here. So this is actually one of the ones that was not sent in in an emergency, which is great. This is from regular contributor Doug Hegler. And the question is, 
What is your favorite hack, a rules change or changes you made to a system? And what is your favorite drift using a system for a setting or situation different from the intent? If you don't have a favorite of either or both, what do you think might be interesting to try? Does playing one game in a completely different rules system count? Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to say mine was running Savage World Shadowrun. Yep. That'd definitely be mine for the uh, drift, I guess. Or hack. It's kind of hard to say, because uh, it's kind of both in a weird way, because Shadowrun is its own system. And also its own setting? I guess more drift, right? Because we're taking a universal system and applying it to a game that already has its own. Yeah. Hack is, is kind of changing a system, but staying within it, I guess. Yeah. I don't have a, a favorite hack, per se. I mean, I'd kind of like to try putting aspects on characters in other systems that aren't fate, but... Yeah, there's that. I don't know. Jenny, you got anything for this one? I'm racking my brains. The the closest thing I can think of for Drift, and I mean, because Savage Worlds is such a versatile system, I don't know if it's even really possible to drift anything with Savage Worlds. Yeah. But if I recall correctly, there was a Mass Effect rule set for Savage Worlds. I... I played a little bit of it a long time ago so i guess that would have to be my favorite because i i don't recall ever having used anything else for that purpose sure i remember doing mass effect trouble with rose once hmm Ooh, that would yeah. actually be pretty cool it was short but cool I, yeah i don't think i have a favorite hack per se which is a shame yeah there have been times where we've just sort of decided this rule doesn't fit this exact situation, so we're just going to roll a d20 and see what happens. Yeah. But there's never been like a specific house rule for a game system that we've, you know, had to implement or, or anything like that that I can think of. Fair enough. As far as interesting to try, you know, I'll be honest, a lot of times that usually leads me down the road of, well, I just want to design my own system for this, which is a terrible place to be when you're already busy. <laughs> I think mine would be uh, hacking together proper sailing rules for D&D. That Ooh. would be pretty cool. Like D&D 5th edition. 3rd edition had some, but they had rules for everything. And I don't know of any for 5th edition. Uh, maybe somebody's got some already. But hacking some together would be fun for the game I'm running right now. I was going to say, gee, Grant, why ever would you want sailing rules for D&D 5th edition? <laughs> well, so I don't have to hand wave it as, yeah, y'all get where you're going because a boat's totally the same as a car. <laughs> Like Jenny, I've been racking my brain and not a whole lot other than what I've already said has come to it. So Fair enough. Just for the record, I feel bad because it's a really interesting question. It's just not one that it I've is. given a lot of thought to in the past. Yeah, and that's yeah. the the danger of these Patreon questions. You know, we spring them on ourselves and all of a sudden, whoa, here's a really complex question. I don't know. I'm sorry, Doug. I do have one thing to say, though, Doug. Uh, this will probably get me thinking along those lines for future games that I do, so that's a good thing, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Oh, man, especially as we get closer to con season for us and we're thinking about running games and running weird games. Oh, wait, there is one. I do have a favorite drift. Okay. I have not actually played it yet. If I'm recalling correctly... My boyfriend wants to run a Mad Max crossed with Traveler game. Okay. So none of the Traveler setting, but all of the Traveler rules applied to Mad Max Fury Road setting. Oh, uh, that'd I'm be cool. I'm very excited to see what happens. Huh. With so like kind of like the life path character creation and stuff? Uh, I think he's going to include a bit of that. But since he intends to run it at a con, um, I don't know if he would be doing 
the character creation at the con or not because last time he did character creation at a con it literally took the whole slot and they didn't get to play <laughs> yes so actually my wife was in that game oh oh i didn't know that yep yep that was the uh, the one <laughs> fear the con she went to oh yeah that's right and you know it's funny you mentioned traveler that reminds me happy jacks has talked about this and i don't know if they've made it available on the internet anywhere uh but one of their hosts or a friend of theirs who's running a game for them did a full conversion of Traveler, complete with a full life path system for Star Wars. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. So you basically get to roll up a Star Wars character and all of their history in the Empire and Rebellion and all that, and then play Star Wars with Traveler. Huh. Yeah. So that's a, a very impressive drift that I think would be very appropriate. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, cool. Thanks, Doug. Great question. For all the rest of you who want to send questions in, you can always uh, support us, patreon.com slash saving the game. The show is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. You guys cover all of our hosting costs and keep us on the air, and it's great. You make the show so much better, it's amazing. Yeah. All right, so we've got scripture to read, and who wants to take this first bit of scripture? I could do that. Exodus chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. This is Judges 3, 13, and 14. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And finally, we have Revelation chapter 3 verses 14 to 19. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. So our topic tonight is on limiting the evil of villains in our games. This is a listener-requested topic from a while back, so long ago that I actually don't remember who requested it, I'm sorry. But it's something we've also kind of talked about throughout the show as part of other topics. We've never really pulled it to the forefront as a topic of its own before, so it seemed appropriate to talk about. When we talk about limiting a villain's evil, well, I mean, that's a nice phrase, but Peter, what are we really talking about here? Basically limiting how horrific the content in your game is because of what your villains do. You can look at this from a couple of different directions. Uh, One is obviously kind of that higher overview of, you know, lines and veils, let's not make this game too R-rated in terms of violence or whatever. But there's also a little bit of a difference between villain and antagonist here. You can have characters that are basically virtuous opposed to your player characters, or you can have... Well, antagonist, it's basically just someone who is opposed to your own goals, and they don't necessarily have malicious intent, uh, at least not towards you or towards the group. Yeah, or potentially towards anyone else. They just have different goals and we happen to come in conflict. But malice, I think, is the key word. Villains are people that we really want to dislike. Antagonists just happen to be people the protagonists have to deal with in some way. So here's the next question. 
Why does it matter that we want to limit the evil of villains sometimes? Why is that relevant at all? If we're telling a story, should we care? Well, I think the answer is obviously yes, but there's some depth to it that's going to shape the conversation. I think when you're playing, especially with young kids, it's really important that you not go over the limit. Like, I wouldn't show a show like Tokyo Ghoul to a young child. Because no. that's going to mess them up real bad. So I think if you're playing with children, it's definitely important to... Keep the evil bite-sized, if that makes sense. Like, let them see the type of evil that they are able to handle and, they, and that they are able to identify as evil still, mm-hmm. but that they won't be messed up over and that you're not going to feel bad about showing to them. Yeah, I've kind of got an advantage here. I've got a four-year-old, and that four-year-old has been really enjoying She-Ra lately because that's on Ooh. Netflix. <laughs> so I've been having to watch a lot of She-Ra. For those of you who don't remember that, that's the He-Man knockoff. I think it only ran for one season, maybe two, with Prince Adam's twin sister, Adora, which Rachel loves. She thinks it's an amazing show, and sh- she is delighted by it. The bad guy is cartoonishly evil, and cartoonishly evil in this case means sapping people's life force to turn them into convenient servants and fire a giant cannon based off their life force. And, you know, apparently there's no conservation of evil energy because as soon as you destroy the cannon, even after it's shot a bunch of times, everybody gets all their energy back. That's convenient. Yeah, that's very convenient. Yeah. Whereas in some of the other shows we're watching, no, this guy is just a murderer. It's very different. I'm not showing my four year old daughter, though. So, yeah, uh, age appropriateness matters. A play setting matters too. If I'm running a game in a church, I'm probably not running it with some terrible serial killer and graphic detail and and that sort of thing or, you know, a genocidal maniac as the villain. Yeah. There are even some board games that are technically child appropriate that I would not bring into a church. Sure. Because like one of my favorite card games right now called Nevermore. Nevermore is a little bit dark in some weird and twisted ways because it's based off the writings of Edgar Allan Poe. I know a lot of people who would be made uncomfortable by that, Mm -hmm. especially in a church setting. Sure. So I do not bring that one to church board game nights. One of my favorite Um, games is Gloom. It's not really church appropriate, is it? mm -hmm. I mean, it's fun. It's funny, but it's, it's a little off for that setting. It's very similar. One other thing to kind of bring up at this point in the conversation is, and this is, I bring this up only because this is a little bit of a trap that I know I have fallen into myself before. Just because you can think of or know of some level of awfulness does not mean that you have to get to that level or worse in order for your villain to be effective. Mm -hmm. If you have listened to all of hardcore history and you have heard about some of the horrible things that have happened in the past, you do not need to go to that level just to portray your villains as bad. And I think this is a common mistake a lot of new storytellers or poor storytellers make. They want their villain to be villainous, and so they go as far as they can. And often they're justifying it as, it's a setting with the shades of gray, right? It's not all black and white, we don't have perfectly heroic people, we don't have really completely terrible villains, but villains can be really nasty. But they never do anything other than really nasty villains, because shades of gray is often an excuse for as dark as we can possibly make it. Yeah. It's okay to have villains who go so far and no further. That's usually more realistic. 
you know, since we were talking about cartoons, one of my favorite cartoons on Netflix right now is Young Justice. Great show. Immaculate plotting. It's really good. The villains, you know, these are classic DC supervillains. Many of the secondary antagonists annoy me because they don't seem to have anything other than a sort of nihilist destruction in mind. Whereas the main villains have an actual plan. And it's not that there's things they won't do, but rather there's things they don't need to do to accomplish their goals. And so there's no point in doing those things. Yeah, this is kind of the difference between Lex Luthor and Carnage. Yes, it's actually exactly that. Well, what's he doing? He's brokering peace between two countries. Sure, that furthers his goal, but he's not going, Woo, war! We love war! He's (laughs) doing a good thing for his own ends, sure, but he's not going, Hmm... This might be construed as nice. Can't do that. Yeah. And he's not being like, you know, the world just doesn't have enough suffering in it. How can I maximize and intensify the suffering that's in this world? How can I really just spread all that suffering around? Right. And that sets a certain tone as well. We want to set a tone for the game. Well, show what the villain will do and maybe show the villain doing something that isn't completely evil up front. Another thing that happens in a lot of superhero stories is you have the... Hero starting off defeating a minor villain. Not only does that prove that the superhero is awesome, it shows that there are different levels of evil in this world. The Flash beats up Captain Cold. Well, Captain Cold is a bank robber. Who cares, right? He's robbing a bank. That's his grand scheme. That serves to highlight the bigger, deeper, darker evil of the real antagonist of the story. And so your, your secondary villain serves an important purpose. You're creating contrast. All right. So one of the other things that you want to do along these lines, uh, one of the key advantages to dialing the the evil of your villains back is they start to feel a little less cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. If you get bad guys with a sense of honor or with some interesting goals in mind, it'll give that character some texture that they wouldn't necessarily have. I mean, your average red-robed evil cultist from a D&D game is such a trope as to be a cliche and such a cliche as to be a joke. All they want to do is sacrifice people to their evil god and spread blood around and, you know, cause suffering and kill people and make things fall over and die. Okay, but like nobody, even even the worst tyrants in history aren't just motivated by a desire to spread death for its own sake. Sure. Mm -hmm. Deep motives, please. Yeah. And it turns out deep, complex characters don't all act in the same way. So it's a great way to highlight that. Likewise, shaking up player expectations. It's a little metagame, but frankly, showing your players that they're not all cartoonishly evil gets players out of kind of their mental rut and going, oh, wait, this is actually an interesting story. Maybe I should pay attention. And speaking of those players, you want to make sure that you respect their limits uh, in terms of what they can handle without getting actually upset out of the game. Absolutely. We've Mm -hmm. talked about lines and veils plenty of times on this show. And this kind of harkens back as well to tone, right? If there are certain things we just don't want to touch on in this game, your villains shouldn't be doing them. Or depending on the game, maybe they can kind of do them off screen a little bit, but we never want to bring them out into the forefront. Okay, so we've we've kind of laid the theoretical groundwork here. How do we actually make this happen? You know, I think the biggest thing is making sure the villain knows what they want. Motive is the great catalyzer. It makes a story move forward. It's it's something that gets talked about a lot in improv and theater. Like you you break things down into beats. What do I want to do with this action? And that's really how you get a story moving forward. And it's how you get a, a villain moving forward. Because if they don't know what they want, they're not going to be doing anything to get what they don't know what they want. 
Did, does that sentence make sense at all? It, it does. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There are things that a villain needs to do to accomplish their goals. There are also things that they don't need to do, and doing those things is often wasteful. Sure, we can have the cartoonishly evil villain who, oh, I do evil things for fun, but that's still a need, right? They want to be awful. They want to inspire terror, that sort of thing. They have kind of a transgressive impulse of some kind, yeah. you know, which which would often, in a lot of cases, break down to a desire for fame or attention or to disrupt society in some way because they think that's necessary. Yeah. Likewise, you know, a conqueror wants subjects and fame and glory and wealth and power. He does not want mass human extinction. I mean, he may be fighting very bloody wars, but ultimately conquerors need an empire that isn't just empty terrain. Yeah, there's actually there's a there's a very interesting uh, line in the recent video game Tyranny where you're you're actually the agent of this world conquering villain and you can kind of you can take it in some interesting ways. There can be kind of a redemption arc and stuff. But one of the things that um, you'll get in as a line when you're trying to deal with some of the conquered people with this is Kairos does not want to rule over a graveyard. Yeah, you know, it's like, corpses and ghosts are notoriously bad at paying taxes. <laughs> that is true. I mean, sure, they're fine in your average D&D game, but for somebody who's actually trying to set up an empire, not so good. Yeah, but I mean, even in your average D&D game, you go and you try and collect taxes from a ghost and they're like, I have spectral coins. They fall through your hand. You can't spend them. Woo. Oh, come on. They have plenty of treasure. I've seen the charts. All right. Well, whatever. (laughs) Once you you take it once and it's gone, though, I mean, it's not like they're good at creating income or anything. Your economy will stagnate immediately. That's very true. Speaks really to uh, the economic problems. An ectoplasm. Uh, Speak for yourself. Jenny, you had something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, there's also another motivation that I, I would love to see more in games. Um, and when I start running games, I do hope to implement this. But the rival as a villain. It, it's a, a trope commonly used in anime and manga. Like, for instance, in Pokemon, you start off with a rival. Yeah. And the thing I love about the rival trope is that you drive each other forward because both of your motives are to be better than the other. So you start off with more of an antagonist. I have seen some instances in fiction where the rival definitely goes towards the villainous side of things. And that can be an interesting way to ensure that your players aren't driven away necessarily because rivals need each other to still be rivals. The rival still needs the protagonist around, you know, to have somebody to strive towards or to be better than. So that way you can keep the players around, make sure that the players aren't going to, and the players' characters aren't going to be just stomped beneath the heel of this great power because they're an inconvenience. And it's fun to just sort of have your party be like, woo, great, we finished this uh, this awesome thing. Look what we did. We did such good things. And then the rival swoops in and they're like, oh, really? You did such great things? Look at these great things that I did over here. How about that? For my own motives and purposes. Yeah. Now, the caveat there is that you don't want to invincible GMPC who's always yeah. better than the players. Yeah. You want that game of one-upmanship where the party beats the rival and then the rival beats the party and then the party beats the rival and you have this this sense that we're always getting one over the other. Mm-hmm. Not, oh, you did something? I'm going to show up and negate that. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. And it actually bears mentioning, listening to this, that the rival could just be like, I'm more heroic than you are, and I'm going to prove it. And the party's like, well, I will not take this lying down. Mm-hmm. And it's, 
towards the end of the campaign, you like cut away to somebody reading from a children's book. And it's like, and that is how all of the problems in the entire kingdom were solved in a month. <laughs> so one thing that I- I've talked uh, about a D&D game I've played in on this show that wasn't the Birthright game on previous episodes. The game had some good sides and some bad sides. Went on for a long time. I learned a lot. A lot of what I learned was what not to do, um, <laughs> but that's not... That's usefully instructive. It, it is, and I don't want to say the game was bad, right? It had a lot of good points, and the GM running it did some good things. One of the things he tried to do and just didn't really implement properly, but I think was a great idea, we played through a campaign, leveling up kind of quickly, and then we played the other side of this campaign. It was kind of a, a war going on. That party sort of ended up being our rivals. So we had this sense of, like, we know these characters, and we're going to run into them occasionally and interact with them, and we know them because we've played them. We played them a year and a half ago. It didn't play out that way, but that was the idea, and I think that idea is awesome. If you have the time and commitment, it's a really cool idea to let your players play characters, get used to them, and then play the other side so you get that sense of rivalry but not unfriendly malicious rivalry mm-hmm. yeah there was a a phrase that i used to use to describe the other major bookstore in town back when borders was still open and i was still working at barnes and noble i used to say to uh, newer booksellers when i was training them they are the competition not the enemy yeah it's very true with that motivation question in mind i think the next thing to talk about is secrecy There are a lot of covert villains in the stories we tell, operating in the underworld or in the shadows in some way, and one of the things that they really need is to keep their activities secret to some degree. This does not necessarily have any bearing on their morality. They may be terrible people, they may be just barely a little bit villainous, but they cannot be high profile, and that naturally puts a damper on what they can do to stay secret. Yeah, if you have to be able to cover up what you did, a lot of the really horrific dramatic acts of villainy just won't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a good excuse to tone down the villainy some. You can have the guy who says, well, you know, I would blow up the orphanage, but that would let people know about me. So, ta! And sure, he talks a big game, but he never actually does it, does he? It's a great way to keep things a little mellow and get that little thrill of, oh, he's terrible, without really having that be a problem. Mm -hmm. It lets you implement a kind of difficulty level setting for your players. So when they're starting Mm. out, they don't even necessarily have to know that the big bad is there. Oh, yeah. You can have them chasing his henchmen all all over the place and, you know, have them thinking that, oh, they're, they're beating the bad guys, they're beating the bad guys. And then all of a sudden... You whisk back the curtain and it's like, surprise, it was me, Dio. And you can have that big reveal. Yeah, and to be clear, I think Jenny is saying that Dio should be your villain in every game. And she's not wrong. (laughs) Oh, I Who's Dio? 80s rocker. Oh, that, okay. (laughs) No, wait, what? I was making a JoJo's Bizarre Adventure reference. Oh, no, I was talking about the 80s metal band. Oh, that too. Yeah, Um, I mean, come on. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Surprisingly villainous, actually, so. (laughs) Uh, Once again, the generational thing comes to the fore. Yes, and also the the Grant and Peter are the same person thing comes to the fore. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's that. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. And of course, that also gives the 
wait, if we just reveal the villain, that solves our problem yeah. solution, which is fun. And, and that's also kind of a, a counterpoint. It's a way to defeat the villain without doing something terrible to them. Mm-hmm. So that plays into tone as well. Our villain is this bad, but no worse. We don't have to stoop lower than them to defeat them. So the next thing we've got here is personal morality, and I cannot claim credit for this point, but I I love it. It says Shades of Grey doesn't mean only the dark end of the moral spectrum. Right. We hit on this Which one of you came up with this? Uh, That was me. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the first things I was thinking of. And I, I talked about this earlier. I love settings with some Shades of Grey, but it's really important that Shades of Grey doesn't mean charcoal black to black. (laughs) Yeah, shades of light gray can definitely be interesting, too. Oh, yeah. And it gets into the contrast thing as well. We want to have those difficult choices. And this guy's bad, but he's not so bad that we can really do anything about it. Ah, that's tough. If we're saying, well, I want my system to be morally ambiguous and I want my game to have difficult moral questions, don't make them all easy. (laughs) So here's a great example of this. This movie came out when I was in high school, so it might have been a little bit before your time, Jenny. But Still good. Um, oh, it's, it, and it holds up. Yeah. Samuel Gerard, the U.S. Marshal from the, the movie version of The Fugitive that I want to say it's circa like 1995 or so. I don't recall. Is this implacable like manhunter. Early on in the movie, Dr. Kimball, who is innocent and is trying to prove it while he's out on the lamb, you know, says, I didn't kill my wife to Samuel Gerard. And Gerard's response is, I don't care. And then he later takes a, a pretty extreme risk with the lives or with the life of one of his own men to avoid even the appearance of having bargained with another dangerous fugitive. But at the same time, he's also ultimately a very fair person. He is totally committed to justice. And when it starts becoming obvious that Kimball actually is innocent, he really does start to care. And I I think a lot of the time you can get these kinds of characters that are a little bit disinterested, maybe, until you make it worth their while to be interested. Mm -hmm. And those can make for really good antagonists because they're not in it for cruelty. They're not in it for, you know, sadism. They're not even in it for some ignoble motivation like greed. In somebody like Gerard's case, he's in it for probably his own personal honor and the protection of the society that he lives in. And there's a lot to be said for getting your players to work to get the villain emotionally invested in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and stuff like that, getting the villain emotionally invested, maybe even directly in the party, it allows for, for change within the villain, for a potential redemption arc, for repentance, like Zuko in Avatar The Last Airbender. And uh, I'm hoping I'm remembering the character's name, I believe Silas from Reboot, who was originally working for Megabyte, then switched over to the good guy's side. I can't recall. It's been too long. It's been a long time. And, and you cannot go character. back to Reboot. It's really sad. Really? I can go back to it. I, I cannot. I can, st- I can still wear the rose-colored glasses regarding Reboot. I can I can still. Chrissy and I tried. It hurts. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for your predicament. But um, I've never even seen Reboot, so this is just oh. <laughs> right over my head. Oh, so you're not going back at all. Perfect. Oh, you can watch it. <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> I think especially as Christians, redemption arcs are very important and mm-hmm. always allowing your players to let the villain repent. It, it, it's very important to me and it isn't used as much as I'd like in video games, certainly, and in other um, pieces of media. 
Yeah, the the only examples that I can think of in video games are where the villain realizes they were wrong right before they bleed out from the wounds of the last battle. Yeah, like Saren in Mass Effect or... or... That was the exact example I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, or, or there's the one henchman who is clearly highlighted as not as evil, and mm. then they get a redemption moment. Yeah. Okay, but Kronk is great. Well, no. <laughs> Kronk is awesome. <laughs> Kronk is amazing. Kronk is a good example of this, okay? Like, that's actually a fine example. What bothers me is the, uh, what TV Tropes calls the high heel face turn, where it's not, oh, this is an actual moral choice. It's, oh, the one woman switched sides because she's in love with the male hero. That's lazy uh, and oh. generally awful. Yeah. But if it's done properly, you've got your guy who's facing a difficult moral choice, he's chosen wrong, and the protagonists have given that person a chance to decide again, offering that moment of redemption and repentance and forgiveness, and then they choose again and make the right choice that time. And those are important elements. You can't offer redemption without offering forgiveness. Very true. You can also sort of um, use the redemption technique as sort of a way of like, especially with henchmen, as a way of sort of backpedaling a little bit if you've accidentally made the game too dark. Like, uh, whoops, uh, that was a little bit too much. Maybe uh, maybe make it easier for the villain to um, see the error of the ways. Maybe even let the villain have a full-blown revelation where they're just like, what? Oh, that was an error of judgment. You can sort of take from player feedback, see if that's even necessary at all, see if it's even possible or applicable in your game, and uh, maybe implement that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's a good example of this actually in scripture. We see it in First uh, Samuel chapter 26. There's no part of this that was short enough <laughs> and compact <laughs> enough to read during our usual scripture segment, but I do want to call this out. This is the scene where David and Saul are at war. David slips into Saul's camp in the middle of the night with, I think, one or two friends. And rather than kill Saul, he steals his spear and his water jug and leaves. Saul continues chasing David, and David goes, Hey, look, it's your, your spear and your water jug. I snuck in. Could have killed you. I didn't. Saul, to quote uh, from verse 21, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son. Because you considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Then you know, it ends with, so David went on his way and Saul returned home. Saul is definitely the villain of 1 Samuel in a lot of ways. It's, it's a, a narrative that turns against Saul pretty quickly. But it's a good example of that case where somebody who is the villain of the story does the right thing and says, you know what? You got me, and I was in the wrong. I am sorry. Let me fix this. And this does bring something else up. Mercy is powerful, mm -hmm. and people receiving it usually aren't unaffected by it. Yeah, and it also says something important for our own stories, especially if we're trying to emphasize that. If the players show mercy, villains should respond to it in most cases. I mean, I could come up with one or two examples or scenarios where they would not do so. But have either or both of you seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven with Orlando Bloom and Jeremy Irons and so on and so forth? Nope. No. There's a wonderful line in there 
Orlando Bloom is playing this guy that kind of gets drawn into the Crusades and he's over in Jerusalem and he gets into a little bit of a fight and he has the opportunity to kind of demonstrate what his character is like to um, somebody who's on the other side. Mm -hmm. And uh, the phrase, your enemies will know your quality before ever you meet them is said to him once at that point, and then he gets captured later by these people, and the same guy comes up and he says the same line, and he's treated very well in captivity. Mm -hmm. It's exactly that same idea. Now, moral codes, I think, offer a good opportunity to create antagonists. An inflexible moral code can often put people in a very awkward position. And, and when I say inflexible moral code, I don't mean somebody who just changes what they believe in when it's convenient. I mean somebody who... That would be a flexible moral code. <laughs> right. I mean somebody who believes certain things, maybe has taken certain oaths, has sworn to act particular ways, and now the situation has changed, and what they would like to do is maybe not possible, and they have to act in certain ways that kind of make them the villain. Bleach has a great example of this. <laughs> Mass Effect has a great example of this, too. Samara. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Samara, yeah. It's not at all uncommon. I like Bleach because you have um, a character who we believe is the villain or a major villain of the story throughout almost all of season two and three. And then it's revealed that he's a villain because he swore an oath to act in a certain way, and it is critical that he stick to that oath, but now that oath has put him in a terrible position. And, you know, this kind of makes him more antagonist than villain. But the thing is, we don't know that for two seasons. And that's totally fine in a game. Your players may not find out the difference between, I have to act a certain way because I made some promises, and... I act this way because I'm just a terrible human being or terrible dragon or whatever. They may not find that difference out for a long time. And that moment of revelation is a great one, but it also kind of says, well, this person is maybe not trying to be as evil as they could be. They might be trying to do something to limit the damage they're forced to do. Yeah, and that can lead you to those conversations where the, the players confront a villain and, you know, are kind of having their moment of righteous anger, like, you know, how could you do this and that? And the villain turns it around on him and says something like, do you think I wanted to do X, Y, and Z? I could have done, you know, A, B, and C in this situation, and I didn't. Ask yourself why, and, you know, go on this whole thing of their own, and they're like, oh, this guy's actually kind of tragic. This is, this is not a good position he's in at all. Yeah, great for a tragic villain, certainly. Likewise... Indifference is a reason for villains to not go as evil as they could. You, you sometimes have villains who are who revel in the suffering of others, right? But usually people who do bad things don't care about the consequences, or they have trained themselves not to think about those consequences. They get what they want, and they just don't want to think about the, the harm that it does, or or just don't care. And that can cut both ways, you know? I'm being evil, I don't really care what else happens, whether it's good or bad. So, you know, maybe I'm not being terribly awful. Maybe I'm being terribly awful, and I just don't care about that. Well, and look at look at some of the events that wind up adversely affecting the largest number of people's lives. Things, things like a Ponzi scheme or something, where you just defraud a whole bunch of people of, you know, this money that they were intending to be able to retire on, or identity theft, or that sort of thing. A lot of the time, the people who are doing this stuff don't even know or remember the names of the people that they're victimizing. They're just a social security number, or they're just one of dozens of people who signed up for this retirement plan that they can't even be bothered to remember. 
Likewise, something where some resource is made toxic or unpleasant for the people who live under it. You know, the air is polluted, the water is contaminated, um, and areas are radiated or something like that by something that a corporation or a government or something does, whether it's nuclear testing or dumping of chemicals or something along those lines. A lot of the time, it's not like, I'm going to get these people that live in this city. It's like, no, I need to accomplish this thing and eh, whatever. Mm -hmm. Selfishness is an excellent anesthetic uh, for your, you know, moral code and your conscience. Mm -hmm. Greed is a terrible, terrible thing. It, it really is. Yeah. Speaking of, there's also incompetence that goes along with indifference. Sometimes your best villains are people who are just doing the wrong thing because they don't know any better. Mm -hmm. That's Kronk, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> he is a good person working for a bad person, and he doesn't realize it until, what, about three quarters of the way through the movie? Mm -hmm. uh, nine tenths, but sure, why not? Yeah. Okay. Uh, because yeah. it's more fun that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but certainly, I think we can all think of stories where a villain is just acting on bad information, or they have noble intentions and just aren't doing the right thing. And that's cool because that makes them interesting. You can sympathize to a certain degree. And again, it's fun to start off with, you know, with your players or your characters not knowing that this person is really trying to do the right thing and they're just doing it badly. It's fun to think of them as, oh, wow, this is just a horrible, horrible villain. And then reveal that over the course of the game. And it gives an opportunity for internal conflict for your antagonist. And that's also fun. This is also the time, by the way, in the conversation to bring up the fact that nobody's at their best when they're desperate. People who are backed into a corner will often do things that if they were thinking clearly, they would never even dream of doing out of desperation, fear, panic, exhaustion, mm -hmm. uh, being overwhelmed. The more you put the screws to somebody, the higher up you ratchet the stress on them, the less likely it is that they're going to do the noble thing. Mm hmm. So much so that when people actually do manage to pull that off under those circumstances, they tend to get lauded as heroes. Yeah. It's been a while since I've mentioned C.S. Lewis on the show. Like, probably two episodes at least. Oh, that's a while. <laughs> yeah. But I, I remember a point C.S. Lewis made, and I cannot recall which book, and I don't have it in front of me. So this is a paraphrase at best. But he was talking about how we all sort of put on this facade of good behavior, and really we're all kind of not as nice as we would like to be deep down. And when we're tired, when we're stressed, those things come out. And we make those excuses to ourselves and to the people we've hurt. Oh, well, you know, I was tired. That's not the real me. Maybe that is the real you. And because you're tired and stressed and panicked and desperate, that's come out. Mm-hmm. That's a, a good sort of villainy to have where somebody is just being human. That sounds uh, like it was probably from the screw tape letters. I may be wrong about that, but it sounds it's like either screw tape or mere Christianity. I can't recall yeah. which. It may be both. Mm, yeah, yeah could it be. could very well be, knowing C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. Cartoonish evil <laughs> is another option, honestly. If you are trying to have villains in your game, it's okay, depending on the tone that you're setting, to have comically mustache twirling yeah just make them be ridiculous in their evil and when i say ridiculous i mean have them be evil but in a way that isn't actually all that effective skeletor his idea of an evil plan is walk into the badly guarded castle of eternia mm -hmm. i've watched enough of that show now that I can clearly see that there's about a total of 100 people living in all of Eternia. I don't know why anyone bothers. 
<laughs> and his idea is, you know, walk in, magic up somebody to look like a cook, fling pies at everybody at the, you know, royal table and, I don't know, steal a gem or kidnap someone, maybe, at worst, rather than, ah, I've surprised you all. You all think I'm the cook. I'm gonna shoot you now. Yeah, or I'm going to poison you or something. Yeah. Guess what? No, it's reveal myself, cackle, grab the thing, depart. That's cartoonishly evil, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Truly awful things may just never come up. They are not a consequence that people think of in these games and stories and shows and that sort of thing. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. It gets back to tone. Nobody thinks of, oh yeah, I'm just going to murder this person in a tune game. It's not relevant. Yeah. Probably my favorite uh, example of cartoonish evil is the snidely whiplash character from The Great mm. Race. Oh, yeah. Who, he, he tries. He tries so hard. And it never, ever works. Unfortunately, that, that kind of trope can um, get you into a place where the players start to feel invincible. And that can be okay. Especially, I think, if you're running for kids. But if yeah. you're running for adults, it can make things go a little bit off the rails. So, um... Apply with caution? Yeah. Yeah. It's worth pointing out, you're right, this does not necessarily interfere with the success or failure of what the villain is trying to do. It's just, what will he do to accomplish them? A Bond villain doesn't hire someone to do a drive-by on 007. They create complex death traps or sneak a venomous snake into Bond's hotel room. Worst case, they kill someone else to make a point to Bond. And usually that death is off-screen and you just see the results of it, or something indicating, oh, this person has died. And that's cartoonish evil, and that's okay, right? What the villain is trying to do is stop Bond, but he, they're not trying to stop them in a way that sets the tone really, really dark. Yeah, no, no Bond villain is on screen successfully reenacting what any number of ancient empires did to their traitors, you know? <laughs> yeah, oh no, a shark tank. Well, yeah. you know, trust me, Bond will find some way to defeat the sharks. Yeah. His henchmen might not, and that's a way to kind of kind of set a middle level, right? Oh, this guy's so evil, he kills his own guys, but he's never going to be successful against the heroes. He'll try, but he'll never be successful. It doesn't have to just be super light. It can that middle level may be appropriate for your game. Once again, this kind of goes back to to bring this full circle a little bit. This goes back to motivation. You know, if you're if you're looking at the seven deadly sins, a lot of the time when you really start running into problems with your villains, you've got a lot of uh, wrath, lust, or certain types of pride, and you don't get enough of the non uh, vicious type of pride, greed, envy, sloth, or gluttony in serious villains. Uh, mm -hmm. It seems like they're all either just in it to be nasty when this stuff goes off the rails, or they have some other really kind of icky motivation. And it's fine for these people to just be, you know, they just crave a life of luxury, or they just don't want to do something, and so they're going to take some kind of a shortcut around it. This is how a lot of, not kid safe at all, but still somewhat cartoonish Coen Brothers movies go. Yeah. Where you get people with, you know, just, what what's the tagline in Fiasco? Grand plans and poor impulse control or something like that? Yeah. yeah. So you can start running into people that aren't just in it to be nasty and to bring it back around to what we said at the beginning, that is often more interesting as well as less upsetting. Mm -hmm. It's true. The last thing I, I want to talk about here as far as cartoonish evil is that 
and I think Jenna, you you mentioned this with uh, Snidely Whiplash. Yeah, Snidely Whiplash is trying to be evil. It's just his idea of what an evil person does is not the same as what you know, what ancient tyrant or a serial killer today in the real world yeah. would do. Yeah, it's I'm gonna tie this person to the railroad tracks. Yeah, it also occurs to me that uh, I said that Snidely Whiplash was from the Great Race. I'm wrong. Snidely Whiplash is from Dudley Do Right. So yes. Uh, there we go. Just figured I'd fix that that issue right right now. <laughs> uh, good idea. It's probably too late to stop the comments. Probably. But... <laughs> somebody somebody probably will mention this on Twitter at some point oh, yeah. and then realize, oh wait, no, I had to get to the end of the episode. Yeah. Oh no, I feel foolish. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Do we have anything else on this? Because I think we've done a pretty good job covering it. Yeah. I I feel the topic has been thoroughly covered, at least to my Excellent. satisfaction. Okay, Peter? Any last thoughts? I don't have anything to add. Oh, wait. Okay, I do cool. Have, I do have a last thought. Someone is probably going to bring up Undertale at some point. Um, so I'm just going to make sure that I've said that Undertale is a good way to look at motivations for evil and look at variations for evil. So if you want to try experimenting with, with that kind of thing, Undertale is a good game to go to. There we go. Good choice. And I will make sure to link Undertale in the show notes because, honestly, everybody should play it, including me. I haven't yet. Ooh, do that. I've started, but I haven't finished it. I'm a terrible, so. terrible, terrible geek. <laughs> I mean, this is just well known at this point. Anyway, Jenny, pretty good first episode, I would say. Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, it's great to have I you. Had a good time. Yeah. Let's do this yeah, again I, at some point. Yeah, like yeah, like next episode, yeah, like next for episode. instance. Yeah. I mean, how do you look for two weeks? Does it seem okay? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah, no, sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. Excellent. Well, cool. Uh. I want to thank all of our listeners for uh, putting up with what may be a slightly jumpy and, and discombobulated episode. You know, we're all kind of trying to feel out talking over each other. It's been a while since Peter and I have had a third host who isn't a guest host. So, yeah. you know, we're kind of feeling things out. And Jenny, I'm sure, is getting used to talking to us and trying to make a point over us. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Which yeah. can be difficult because we've fallen into some rhythms over the last four and a half years, which uh -huh. is why you are here in the first place. Yeah. Exactly. Everything that you brought up was like, oh, that's something that neither one of us would have thought of. And I've been doing this for four and a half years, so I know what either one of us would have thought of. <laughs> it's like he read my mind. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So, Jenny, thank you again. And this is going to be awesome. And thank you to all of our listeners. You guys make the show possible, like I said before. Uh, not just through Patreon, honestly, but also just being there, listening to us, and giving great feedback as well. If you do want to help us out without necessarily supporting us on Patreon, uh, leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Rate and review us wherever you can. Share us around. These are all great ways to help us out. And if you want to follow us, because we try and post a little bit in between episodes, uh, follow us on social media. You know, we're saving the game on Facebook, Twitter, Google+. And Peter, of course, does a blog post every week in between episodes, for those who don't know. Uh, and you can find that and links to everything, including everything we've mentioned in this show, at stgcast.org. Anybody got any last thoughts? If not, I think we can wrap this up. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, from all of us here at Saving the Game, all three of us, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. See ya. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. 
Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.